Views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAF Aviation. Today is episode nine. We are privileged to have Colonel David Buchanan with us today. He is a KC-10 pilot and is currently serving as the Department Head of English at the United States Air Force Academy. Colonel Buchanan commissioned in 1999 from the United States Air Force Academy. He served in a variety of different roles throughout his career, including in his last assignment as one of the directors of operations at the 618th Air Operations Center at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois. Colonel Buchanan has multiple publications, including his first book, Going Scapegoat, which was released in 2016. His scholarly interests include Native American literature, the literature of the American West, and American War literature. He has over 2,400 flying hours in the KC-10. Thank you for being on the show, sir. Thank you for having me. So I guess um, we'll kind of just start right away with uh, um, your flying career and also kind of how that ties into your English career. So first up, kind of just like take me through what's the day to day as a tanker pilot look like? I flew KC-10s from 2005 through 2010. And so I went into that airframe as a senior captain and pinned on major while I was there. So I was a co-pilot as a major with aircraft commanders who were often captains or even younger. So my day-to-day was uh, quite different than your regular line flyer. I started out kind of kicked up a little bit higher in the squadron hierarchy. They put me in charge of a flight, which wouldn't have happened to a co-pilot, but that's just because I came there later um, because I was here teaching. Um, But the day-to-day... Um, during that time when I was flying, the entire time I was actively flying the KC-10, it was during pretty much most of Obama's surge in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were very, very busy. There's only 59, well, there were only 59 KC-10s total on both coasts. And at any one time, I can't remember these numbers, they're going to be wrong, but it was like 18 KC-10s were on the ramp at al so that's a large portion of the flying force and the actual iron. The actual airplanes were downrange. So we were deploying crews, a hard crew. We flew two pilots, a boom operator, and an engineer would head to Aldafra to deploy every three weeks. And we bring a crew back um, every three weeks. And so that's a very fast pace. And it was fairly grueling because you would spend, when you were at home, You'd fly anywhere between two to three times a week. Quite often, a local would be about eight hours at sortie. And so you'd do that two to three times a week, and then you'd go on a trip. You'd be on um, either a CONUS or an OCONUS trip probably every other week. So you were flying. You were rarely in your own bed. Um, It was either training and upgrading, getting your currencies, or you were downrange. So um, when we talk about like supporting combat operations, so just kind of as you mentioned, so your tanker pilots are never really technically deployed. It's pretty much just you're either stateside or you're flying combat missions. Not true during my time. We were we were deployed for 120. I deployed seven times. And so you would deploy to Aldafra. What we don't do is deploy as a unit. So whereas like the 6th Airlift Squadron at McGuire, which is where I was flying, they would pick up the whole squadron their airplanes and they would deploy as a unit so we do deploy in fact we deploy way more i think at least at one point our our uh, deploy to dwell ratio was way higher in the tank in the kc-10 because we go 
one off, one crew deploys about 120 to 140 days, and then we come back. But the whole unit stays home and supports then um, the regular taskings. So I have, of those 2,400-ish hours that I have in the KC-10, I think 1,300 are combat hours. That's a lot. That is a lot. So that's that's one big difference. The The deployment structure is, is pretty different from what you'd hear for fighters where you go for two months, four months, six months at a time, and then come back. Um, what else makes the tanker community a little more unique compared to other airframes? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, all this is dated information. It's all changed because KC-10 is going away. Right. Um, and of course, all the operations in Afghanistan and Iraq have changed as well. But what I know is that we spent, I think I added up, I got married in 2005, and then I immediately um, PCS to McGuire I got mission ready really fast and then deployed the, a week after I finished uh, my initial qual, my initial qualification check ride. And I think my wife and I added up in the first five years we were married, we slept in the same bed, something like three and a or like I was gone three and a half of the five years. So a year and a half out of five years, we actually slept in the same bed. So what is different? I think that I was always gone, always gone. And even when you're home, you're uh, we had night sorties and so you're overlapping with uh, my wife worked at the time so that's a that's not a complaint that's what I always wanted to do when I was a cadet people would always say oh I don't want to do that airframe because the deployment schedule or because I want to have a family that no that was exactly why I wanted to to be a pilot because I want to go do my job so I'd say that's a difference right there that's cool um so when we're talking just like on state side doing training with your unit, um, what are those like the hours look like? Um, I know you're talking about like obviously flying night missions and stuff like that, but a typical like if you fly during that air, if you don't fly, what are those hours like? It would depend on the schedule. So you, the scheduler is the most powerful person in the squadron and usually it's a captain. And so I think, again, numbers are off here, but I think there are 180 or so um, people in my unit in the second air refueling squadron at McGuire. And, you know, that's boom operators, engineers, and pilots. And among those, so what does that put it, about 60 pilots or so, that, that scheduler is the most important person. And so you always want to make sure that that person, I, when I was scheduler, um, I knew everybody's business. And so you get way too familiar with people's personal lives and you're trying to work with them and get them in and out because that's, it all depends on the flying schedule. So when you're flying, you're still at work, but it's not like always going to be a, <clears throat> excuse me, an eight to five or a seven thirty to four thirty duty hours. Cause it's all, it's all precluded by your flying schedule and your simulator schedule. And your other qualifications. I mean, we have a list of uh, currencies that you have to maintain that are not just in the airplane. And so no two days are the same, I guess, is the easy answer to your question. So um, you have a very rich background in English. Mm. Um, so talking, tying, kind of tying those, your flying career and your English career together, how do you think um, service in the military has impacted your English career? And how the other way around, how do you think you're writing has influenced your military career? Well, I've had a weird career, and so I wouldn't separate the two at all. Um, they complement each other, um, but they're also totally different. I always like to say 
my, f- my flying brain is different than my teaching brain or my scholarly brain. Um, one atrophies as the other one builds up. Not that you don't need to be a critical thinker to fly. You do. But it's a different side of your brain. It really is. It's, uh, it's active. Um, it's, not, uh, um, it's, it's not as it's faster. Um, it's less deliberate, I think. And so my overall career has been... Um, it's a long story I could go into, but, it, you know, I was T-38 FAPE, and then I went on a long-term DNIF, and then I ended up going back to school. The English department picked me up. I got good grades here, so they sent me off to get my master's degree, and then I came back and taught. And so I got back here to teach before I had really flown at all. I had just barely finished pilot instructor training, training in the T-38, and so I developed my teaching skills and my advanced degree almost quicker than I did catch up in a, in a major weapons system. Um, so I taught here as a captain from 03 to 06, and then I got my flying status back. And then uh, I ended up in a KC-10. Um, and when I went back to fly it, it had been almost six years since I'd flown an aircraft. And that was a T-38B, so before the upgrade. And then I sat down in a simulator for a KC-10. So it was, you know, you fly by yourself pretty much in the T-38. And so then I ended up in a crew aircraft, and there was so much new to me that I had no idea. It had been six years since I flew any aircraft. So I think that gap that I did where I got a master's degree in English from University of Kansas, go Jayhawks, and then I ended up here for three years and then teaching cadets and manipulating a classroom and learning how to be in charge of a classroom and plan a lesson plan. By the time I tried to learn how to fly a crew aircraft, I, I leaned on those, those years in the classroom to adapt, to adjust, more than I did my flying training because I couldn't remember it. It had been so long ago, and it was different. I never flew a T-1. Um, You cross the threshold in the KC-10, it's something like 50 feet above the ground. And that that was crazy to me. The first time I did that, I thought I was going to die. And uh, um, being able to to balance what I didn't know and to still stay calm and trust my training and trust my abilities, I really do put that more in my, my teaching background. Awesome. So uh, we'll talk about the the KC-10 a little bit and kind of where where the Air Force is going and, and the tanker mission. So what what made the KC-10 unique to fly versus uh, the other tankers we've got? It's huge. I, we mentioned this earlier that I always called the KC-135 the baby tanker. And uh, you, as you mentioned, you don't notice how big the KC-10 is until it's sitting beside a KC-135. And I didn't really notice how big it was until I pulled up behind a 135 to get gas. And, uh, and the KC-10 was massive, way bigger than the KC-46, too. It just is a big, big aircraft, and it could carry cargo, 55,000 pounds of cargo. Oh, somebody listening is going to totally correct me there. But it's, we could carry cargo, a lot of it. The 135 and the 46 can as well, but not as much. And we could carry way more gas. And so the, the dual mission there, the cargo and the air refueling, allowed us to do uh, long fighter drags across the pond um, with some of the 
fighter units gear on our airplane a lot of it including the passengers you can carry again i don't know the numbers i forget this but like up to 70 passengers just airline seats and so that's what makes it different and then unrefueled just going from a b or a point a to point b unrefueled we can carry our own gas too so uh, it was very very flexible and then in afghanistan and iraq when you loitered, if you had other KC-10s, you kept that gas over the battle all as much as you could. So since we could take on gas and not all 135s can receive as well, we were often, all right, we just consolidate into the nearest KC-10. So it was always a joke that, oh, good, KC-10s in Iraq, all the 135s can go home now because they can just put all their gas into us and, and go home. And so... Uh, I used to make jokes that you'd hear on the tanker interplane um, in Afghanistan, um, 135 pilots saying, any KC-10s out there? Any KC-10s? That's funny. Um, put it into perspective, if you can, how much gas that the KC-10 actually carries. Obviously, I know there's probably some number of gallons, yep. but approximately like how many flight hours for a fighter would that probably be carried onto a KC-10? Uh, what if, we could extend? Oh, I'm just making up numbers here because I don't remember the actual capacity. But I do know if we had a B-1 on our frag in Afghanistan, it was great because they could take 110 pounds, which was basically our full load. And so, yay, then we got to go home. Um, but then you equate that down to what does an F-16 get in one sip? I think it was like 3,000 pounds, um, give or take. An F-15 was around... 10,000, give or take. Uh, an A-10 uh, was the least. It's like 3,000. So uh, so do that math. If, we're, if we've got 100 to 110 pounds available in, in the, and you got a bunch of F-16s, you, they're just sipping. And so that's why you could drag them all the way across the, the pond from, from South Carolina and South Carolina all the way to Germany if we needed to because you could do four or five or six all the way just on one KC-10. It's pretty impressive. So, so for um, for the future fight, we're looking at a lot of long fighter drags and, yep. and stuff like and that. And the fighters once are we, bigger and they carry more right, gas. Right. Once we look at the Pacific, so what? Um, just from someone with experience in the more logistical world, what what issues do you foresee in in that? Um, obviously, range, but um, specifically in the tanker world, that that ratio of tanker to fighter is going up or is that down it's like one to one almost for uh, f-35s and a kc-46 um and so kc-10 could drag six f-16s just one of them could drag it all the way across the pond so now if you're gonna get a, a flight of four f-35s to hawaii you're gonna need three or four kc-46s and i and the the future fight, as they put it, is going to depend on that number. And so, so you're going to need a lot of them, I think. And so kind of going off that, that future fight mentality, um, how are tankers going to be leveraged? Because against a country with advanced air defense systems, you know, we can't just fly really over the country if those air defense systems are still up. So what's the distance or like, how are we going to protect our tankers if we were have to, having to go across the Pacific and refuel fighter aircraft? 
Well, right now you'd, you'd be bound by the same rules we've always been bound by. Um, the KC-10 carried had no defensive systems. We didn't even have parachutes. And uh, so, so we managed quite well. Of course, depending on our near peers and uh, what that air defense system looks like, obviously we're going to have to stay away. So that will, that will change things quite a lot. I don't think the KC-46 is equipped with a whole lot more, but I don't know that for sure. And do you foresee a future of there being a tanker that's low observable or some stealth tanker? That's what everybody's talking about. Or or is it, do you think it's going more unmanned before that happens? Like what the Navy's kind of doing? Obviously, I don't think that's necessarily 100% really stealthy, but unmanned or refueling. Just so it's not like there's a crew on board, so you, you can take a lot more risk with that. Yes, I think that is how soon and how fast. I don't know. I have no idea to predict that. I've stopped trying to do that sort of thing. Will you be refueled by an unmanned tanker? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, my take, I think I probably will if I fly. I mean, if it's a 20 year career. Could be. I mean, that's, think about it. By the time I'm out of here, 2026, that's 2046. We're talking. When did they start acquiring the KC 46? been a little bit it's been a little bit for sure so So. we're starting now go i don't know i have my doubts but i think it's a good it's a good idea but we're limited by well all the same limiters that we've always been limited by that is true i would point to the uh, next generation air dominance program which um i mean at least from what the the public knows very little um including myself um obviously but like they literally, we nobody knew about it, and then the Air Force one day was like, oh yeah, we have this thing, and by the way, it's already flown. And everyone's like, wait, what? And mm-hmm. it's still, obviously nothing really is public about it, but I'm really interested to see where that goes. And I know we've talked a lot with other uh, fighter pilots. You think there's a stealth tanker out there flying we just don't know about? If I, there's so many, as I, as I talk to more people and learn how much stuff is actually not public. Is this the UAVs everybody's talking I about? I don't know. They're actually the, just the tanker green, pilots up there the flying green, a stealthy airplane. The, uh, there's so many green door projects in the Air Force where I think we are far more advanced than I think a lot of people expect. All right. Yeah. I mean, um, you got to hope. That's, right? that's my personal take, though. Um, We're all optimists. So going, and, uh, yeah. going back to that, the little touch on an unmanned tanker, how, how much, um, what, is, what is the piloting like when you've got that dance of fighter aircraft and tanker aircraft in formation? Uh, what, is, what is that like, managing all those aircraft at the same time? That's the best part of it. You know, when it's happening, I had, uh, I once was... There's so many air radios on that KC-10, and so I think we were in the middle of Afghanistan and we were, we were getting gas from another KC-10, and there was maybe a B-1 stacked down below us waiting to get gas from us. And then we started stacking fighters who were then at next in line, and they were coming in, and uh, we were stacking everybody down because you get gas and then you leave high. And, then, um, and when that's working... When the boom operator's doing his work and the engineer's doing their work and co-pilot and pilot are working in the radios and everybody's doing their job, it's a beautiful thing. We don't even have to talk about it. You don't even have to think about it. Everything's just clicking right along. Um, it's, it's why we always, it's why we do everything. It's why I loved it. And uh, what's it like? It's, it's just totally gratifying to, uh, to be good at something and to be good at it at a level that that you're so confident that 
well, I'm, you can just look at it and say, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I, and it's not an overconfidence. It's just confidence in your training and your experience. Um, there's nothing better, in my opinion. I want to I wanna circle a little bit back. Um, talking about you were flying T-38s, mm. and then obviously you went to NIF, and then yep. you came back and went to the KC-10. So um, same thing with a, a former guest of ours who flew the T-38s and then ended up um, flying the C-17. or the C Oh, yeah. Um, so what's that, what was that like? Because obviously normally uh, people mostly think of uh, T-38s as the fighter-bomber track. Yep. And so how did that work when you came back? Was that a decision you made? Was no. that a decision the Air Force forced upon you? Mm-hmm. Um, and what was that situation like? Oh, this is a long story, but the short of it is I wanted to be a fighter pilot all the way through the academy and then in pilot training. Like, why not? That's, of course, what I wanted to do. And I had, I got 38s, and then I had a fighter follow-on. Um, and then I was medically disqualified. It is a head injury. And uh, that decision was all made for me by the medical DQ and, and the flight surgeon and the rules. Um, they were worried. I think the rules was te- were technically that I, w- they were worried that I was going to have a seizure. And I never have. But studies and numbers said that I probably was going to. And so they, I was medically disqualified permanently. I never saw a medical evaluation board because they deemed me fit to stay in the Air Force. So that's how I ended up here. I went back to school and then ended up teaching here. And so instead of picking up a new AFSC, I started applying for waivers. And I had to get a lot of, I had my head examined a lot of times. I had to take IQ tests. Um, They tried to induce a seizure um, multiple times, multiple studies over and over again. I had something like 12 MRIs in five years. And so when I finally, there was enough information out there that they said, you're not gonna have a seizure um, they gave me my flying status back, but they said it was only as a co-pilot or with a co-pilot. So basically that limited me to crew aircraft, and I was an ACC asset at the time because I was a T-38 FAPE. And uh, <clears throat> I talked to the functional manager, and he said, I remember he said, I have two words for you, B-52. That's three words. Anyway, it's funny. And uh, I was just getting—I was just getting mar- married, and my wife did not want to go to Louisiana or Minot. And I just started—I just started asking, "Is there something else? Is there something else?" And we looked at EC-130s, I think, for a while because they were in Tucson. And then uh, I just got—I think I just got lucky. I don't know how it happened. I still can't answer the mail there. That I just made a phone call and. Uh, the, the manager on the other side said, all right, do you want KC-10s? I've got a slot available. And I said, yes, please. And so I ended up in them. And then I told you about that, that spun up. I ended up catching up, I feel like. I was an, I was an instructor pilot. Um, I was never an evaluator before I, I moved away. But, uh, but catching up, it was a, it's a different world entirely, the, the heavy versus the, the single-seat mentality. It overlaps, but it but it was not a it's not a seamless move. So when when you uh, ended up with that the KC ten slot, was that more so you wanted that aircraft or you wanted the locations? I want. Had they said you can have a fighter, I would have said yes. I would have. It would have been great. That's what I wanted. Um, but since it was limited, I at that point had prioritized my new wife. I had grown up a little bit and. Uh, I wanted 
that location. That location. I didn't want, there was nothing about C-17s that spoke to me, but the fact that I could be outside of San Francisco or outside of Philadelphia were the, were the key parts of that. And so I kind of, I kind of let her be the number one reason there. And of course she regretted it the second we got there. <laughs> yeah, you, you talked earlier about the, the pretty pretty intense deployment rotations yeah, and, and trips. How how did you guys um, how did you guys manage through that? It was before video conferencing was available. So we had rules. She had rules. We had rules that uh, that I called her every time I landed and my crew would always make fun of, fun of me because we had like a shared phone number in this weird trailer around the corner and down the way where we were only the, the op squadrons had the code to the door and there were like three phones in this trailer and we'd land, we'd go get dinner. They'd all go to work out or go to bed or whatever. And I'd go to make my phone call and I would call every flight. You know, I think that it was definitely helpful for your marriage, but I could see why you got made fun of oh, yeah. for that. She made me shave off my mustache once too. So, Gosh, yeah, not the mustache. That's really I, hard. For I'm me. Uh, I'm excited for mustache march. Mustache march this year. I'm excited. Um, I kind of want to uh, go back um, a little bit. So I think we were talking KC-135 a yeah. little bit. Um, the KC-10 and the kind of the newer KC-46. Um, could you just differentiate those aircraft a little bit, if you could? Not very well, other than the fact that um, I talked about the size. That's ultimately a difference between the, the 10 and the 135, the size. Um, otherwise, their employability is about the same, just on different scales. Then uh, the KC-46, about all I know about it, when I worked at uh, the AOC, at TACC, it was just coming up online and just starting to do operational AR. And um, for a while there, it was only refueling with the Drogue. So uh, it could only do Navy. So it was doing a lot of F-18 work. Um, I think that's all changed now. But um, as far as using them, I think they don't change a whole lot other than scale. And, uh, and then the big, of course, the big difference in the 46 is where the boom operator sits. I mean, the 135, the boom operator lays on their belly with the pad. If you've looked at, have you ever been on a boom operator? Haven't had the no. chance. Yeah. So they lay in the, the joysticks are like this. They're laying on their belly. And then the 10, it's such a big spot that there could be three that just sit down and it's uh there's a mirror reflex that way, that way. And then that way to mm-hmm. look out. And then, uh, KC forty six, they sit up front, and it's all uh, it's all uh, transmitted by magic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that kind of sounds like uh, Star, uh, Star SpaceX's uh, connectivity with the ISS and Dragon capsule. It's all automated and all special and stuff. Well, they're flying. They're doing. They're flying the boom still, but it's what they're looking at instead of looking at an airplane. They're looking at an image of an airplane, which is apparently a big deal. Uh, it sounded like it in the news. I yep. don't know. Haven't haven't had a, had the chance to talk to anyone. Well, you think about it. You think about it. It yes. It it seems it seems difficult to grasp your mind around. I mean, to put your mind around the fact that that if all it takes is a, a broken wire, and then then the capability goes away instead of just looking out the window. So let's put a window there. So yeah. 
Um, kind of going kind of a little bit to your education and background. So I know we kind of touched on it earlier, but how did having an English degree change your career? And um, I think I was reading uh, your bio and just, yeah, you have a lot of publications. And how's that relationship like with your publications in the Air Force, personal capacity related, or how does that all work? Well, I always say when cadets ask me if they can, if they need to have an engineering degree to be a good pilot, I say absolutely not. Um, not to be a good pilot and not to be a pilot at all. Everybody knows that, but somehow people don't really believe it. They'll say, oh, okay, but, but still I'm going to go get that other degree. Um, so I talk up my major, um, obviously because I'm the department head, but because I do believe that while no offense, I've very rarely used, if you want to talk about the use value of a degree, I've very rarely used uh, my physics background or my chemistry background or all the aero and astro classes that I took. Now, I value those classes. I learned plenty, but the use value, I don't sit down and, and uh, launch a satellite or whatever it is what we did in that class. Whereas I use what I've learned in my English classes every single day that I've been a pilot, a husband, a friend, an officer. Um, it is the most important part of my uh, officer development is the classroom learning that I did in English classes. Now, it's not just my undergrad. I, you know, I've got two advanced degrees that further develop that. But by studying literature, by close reading literature, by writing about literature and language and analyzing language and then teaching that to youngsters, it's uh, it's the most important part of my my uh, professional skills, I think, other than the fact that I'm just really, really good pilot. <laughs> Awesome. Um, kind of continuing on with that, USAFA itself is a pretty STEM forward emphasis. Um, emphasis, yes. And how how do you, I guess as a department head and also just as an advocate for, for the arts, um, how do you maneuver that kind of environment? It's getting difficult. I think with all the STEM cheerleading or emphasis, as you put it, that goes out there along with, even though, even though we all go to school here for free, um, the the tuition fear mongering that exists, which is real. I'm not downplaying how expensive college is getting for those who who aren't blessed with a scholarship like we all are. Um, with that facing the humanities, it's very re- very real that we're shrinking. Um, you can look at our our majors board out there in the hallway, and uh, it's hard to recruit um, cadets these days convincing a cadet of what I just said, convincing that that's true is a very difficult thing. And even more so convincing that cadet's parents that uh, what they're studying is going to have some sort of like translation into dollars um, in a career when they get out of the Air Force is, uh, it's a difficult feat. And uh, I believe in it. I'm a a deep believer in the value of it. But uh, how do I negotiate it? I haven't cracked the code yet. Still working. Yeah, we're working on it. So, so a large uh, part of your career um, as a cadet, young officer, and, and now um, has been at USAFA. And so over the years, what do you think has changed, good and bad? And where do you think we can go to be better as an institution? 
I say this all the time in class. Don't ever let some grad tell you that it was harder when they were here. It was different, but not majorly different. Some things change, but everything stays the same. I wore that outfit. Um, I had that haircut. I still have that haircut. Um, we do the, we have the same experience and we share these experiences. And that's what's cool about the, the academy experience that we've all shared it. So when you run into grads, you can all say, oh, I remember recognition. Was it before spring break or after, or was it in January? Who cares? That doesn't make it harder or not because you still did it. What actually happened during recognition that might've changed. But that's also not a substantive change in my book. And so I think a lot of the ways um, we didn't have, I got a computer when I got here, but it was massive and it, and it was, it had like 16 meg (laughs) and it was basically a word processor. And um, I got my first email address when I was a freshman and, and just do the math on how the tracking mechanisms work for, for uh, your life now and where they were when I was a cadet. Uh, We were trusted a little bit more, I think, or at least allowed a lot more rope, however you, whatever metaphor you want to throw in there, that um, the oversight was was less visible. And so whereas uh, I was allowed to mess up a little bit more, I think there's a little less a little less leniency for cadets these days. Um, we know where you're at all the time and we can reach out and sure touch do. you all sure the do. time. Everybody knows where I'm at too. It's, it's true for everybody in the Air Force, not just cadets, but that's changed the fabric of, of your life. But what has changed about the Academy? I think a lot of things, but nothing substantive. We, we all have the same thing. I graduated in 99. You're going to graduate next year and we're going to be able to say, Hey, we did the same thing. At the end of the day, yeah. So, at the end of the day, I hundred uh, percent agree with that statement. Um, you guys are, you guys are so cadets are so earnest these days. I think we had a little bit, a little bit more uh, negative impact of cynicism in the nineties. Um, we, uh, I think we had a little better sense of humor than y'all do, but <laughs> but you guys, you guys are so earnest about it. Your level of care, I think, is uh, a little less questioning. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I say that not as a criticism of kids these days, but, uh, but I am constantly impressed by, uh, by how committed you are to making yourself better and by being better and by, by continuing that kind of like upper trajectory of education and development. It's impressive. I will, uh, I will say my, uh, you mentioned, obviously we've all had it, the old grad saying, Oh, back when it was yeah. hard or, oh, yeah. Even people here now. Um, AOC's what, what professors. I, yeah, what I would say <laughs> is my uh, my sponsor dad, who graduated from here in the mid-90s, say that he thinks this place is way harder now just because we have these little things that we hold in our hands mm-hmm. and can talk to anyone in, on the world for the most part. Well, and, and it's just you, such a distraction. Yeah, and then it's, there's, you're going to get you get feedback all the time. And, you know, there's no such thing, at, or let me put it this way, any sort of... Uh, unsolicited feedback is really just veiled criticism and it's available right there. Anytime you pick that up with social media and you guys are, you guys grew up with that unsolicited advice left and right where I, we grew up just ignoring it. <laughs> Nobody cared. Enough yeah, there's, to ever say it. there's always something to compare yourself to always, uh-huh. always something that's, 
the next step up or or doing something better than you are right so So i had to i marched to breakfast and lunch every day big deal i I could (laughs) not imagine having to march at breakfast you guys are freaking out that well there was a little bit of rumors last spring we did it once last year um for disciplinary reasons in group two, but yeah. Oh, yes. yeah, I mean, doing that, that every day. Boo-hoo. I mean, <laughs> you guys are freaking out about this unlimited pass thing going away too. Oh my, oh my. I mean, our past situation yeah. was way worse than yours. And so it, does that make it harder? I don't know. It made it different. And uh, do I support them going back to some sort of past structure? Yes, probably it's a good idea. I don't know. It's existed since this place existed, and then COVID happened. But there's another one. COVID. We didn't have COVID when we were cadets, and y'all do. There's yep. like a there should be like an asterisk by Ramshaw that <laughs> said uh, one year of COVID or one year at two years of COVID, whatever it is. So kind of kind of going into the the last question, I want to I want to ask a uh, preface question of a question I forgot to ask earlier. So uh, Colonel Dietz, um, our first guest on the ups, on the podcast, I uh, was talking about, I think believe it was one of his stories. Actually, it was maybe in class when I had him as a teacher, but it was when he was in a strike eagle with a I think it was he was teaching a student how to hook up to a tanker, mm. and things were not going very well. Anyways, I think the boom put a hole in the aircraft. There was a break called, <laughs> and the two aircraft separated very quickly intentionally because safety. Yes. So obviously on the other side of that, as the pilot, do you have you had any instances like that, or do you have any good stories of, I'm not going to say close calls, but definitely when people didn't know what they were doing? So it's a long story, so settle in. Um, I'll tell it really quickly. But uh, we used to come up the, pull, the boulevard, is VFR Boulevard, um, just an airway through Pakistan on the way into Afghanistan. And as we were f- flying up, I was meeting a C-17 to come up and get gas. They were doing dry plugs. They were just getting their currency. And it just so happened that we were there, they were there. And so we gave them a plug. And uh, they broke our boom. And so... I don't remember what was broke about it, but we had to call forward and I relayed through another KC-10 that I could, that I was in radio range with. I said, hey, pass to the Kayak that we can't, that we're broken. And uh, they did. And so then an hour goes by and we're now in country. And I call the Kayak. Exxon, I believe was the guy's call sign. Whoever the tanker controller was at the Kayak. Um, what do you want us to do? Because we can't offload gas. And so the KC-10 has the ability to uh, reverse AR. It's really slow, but we can push gas up through our up through the boom into the the tanker, and so you can give your gas to the tanker. And uh, they said we want you to go find Whistler nine eight um, and give them your gas. So we did the math, and we had a full tank of gas and. So we asked them, "How long do you want us to do this? It's going to take us like three hours to offload all oh, this." And they came back, and this is this radio relay, and it said, do one hour. And so a one-hour contact is a long, long time. Um, the K, uh, F-16 getting their 3,000 pounds takes, I don't know, five minutes. It's really quick. So I said, all right, here we go. And so we went and found Whistler 9-8. We were Whistler 9-9. We came up behind them, started getting our gas, and uh, I said, all right, I'm going to do it in one plug. But I was bouncing all over the place, and I was it was nighttime, and I was hitting every limit all over the place, and I was working hard. I, I call it sawing wood. Yeah, familiar yep. with it. 
And so uh, talking in the intercom, when you're plugged in, you can talk to the intercom to the boom operator. And we were just chit-chatting. And uh, in the middle of our little conversation, he goes, hey, sir, there's, uh, there's something on the ground. It's rising at us. And I said, huh? And he said, yeah, it's got a corkscrew. And I said, huh? <laughs> and so, um, so I call breakaway. It's the only time I operationally call breakaway. You do it all the time in practice, and it's just get away. And the one goes down, and the tanker throws the power up, and the receiver goes idle, and you go down, and you go fast away. And um, So I call breakaway. You hit all the buttons. Went idle. Tankered through their power all the way up, and they ran away, and I started turning, and it's a big aircraft, so you can't turn a lot. You know, I think I was 45 degrees of bank, and I started turning, and my boom operator, who was sitting right behind me, as soon as I called breakaway, he jumped up and went and ran into the back, and you can, we only have two windows over the wings, one window, one side each, and he looks out, and he comes running back in, and he goes, it was a flare, it was a flare. <laughs> <laughs> so we were above a, we were above a fob, and there was an emu- uh, illumination flare that, uh. it, that they'd fired out, and the boom operator happened to look right at it. I mean, almost impossible to spot, but he was looking at it, and he thought it was a missile. That would have been a bad day for both of you. It would have been a bad day. And the tanker pilot didn't even track any of that. I remember we called back up as we had to get the rest of the gas um, handed over. And so I was like, all right, we're ready to come back and finish that up. He's like, yeah, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) So we got shot at by an illumination flare. That's funny. So uh, it's a little bit of a tradition on the podcast to ask every guest what the best aircraft in the inventory is. Now I'm going to preface this with some people have maintained loyalty to their, uh, their bread and butter and their aircraft. Now we've had a couple people uh, who run away from their aircraft and pick a different one. So I'm going to ask you, sir, what do you think is the best aircraft in the air force inventory and why? I will run away. I love the KC 10, but I love the T 38. It's it's just such a good airplane. You wore that thing, and uh, I I stopped flying it. Uh, it was arrested development. It was before I wanted to stop flying it, and so that of course plays into this. And I was I was 22 years old, and it was awesome, and I loved it. I, I love everything about that airplane. So yeah, T38. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, any closing remarks? I think I'm all good. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks thanks for again. Coming, sir. Yeah. Thank you, sir, for thank coming on the podcast. We, uh, we really appreciate taking your time out and uh, sharing the wisdom from, from the Colonel. Um, so that was uh, episode nine of the Flyover podcast with Colonel Buchanan. Um, we really appreciate him coming on the podcast. As always, uh, these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and uh, Apple Podcasts with clips on Instagram and YouTube Shorts. Um, with that, we'll catch you guys in the next one.